0: Hey, my name is Kyle Burkholder, I'm the pastor here at Covenant Church, and I'm excited today to start a brand new sermon series. It's called The Talents, okay, The Talents. Maybe you've heard of the parable of the talents, maybe you never have. Pretty famous parable of Jesus. We're going to spend five weeks in one parable. We're going to spend five weeks looking at the parable of the talents, holding it like a prism, and I think there's a lot of different angles as we look at the words of Jesus as he tells this story. Um... We're going to see a lot of different aspects of not only who we are, but how uh, God wants us to live. I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, There's a lot to teach us, and yes, it is about kingdom life and investment. A lot of times when the parable of the talents is taught, it's about money. People are like, this is about when the guys get some money, and then they double the money or they don't, and the master's happy or not happy, and this is all five weeks about my money? No, relax. not five weeks about your money maybe one, maybe later in, the, in this series, but it's actually really interesting how multifaceted the, the story is. And I'm gonna say a few times, the reason that I think Jesus talked so much about money was because money is ubiquitous and sort of essential for life. It's also something that you can't um, fudge the details of. Like when you get your bank statement or your investment statement, it says what it says. And you can't say, well, it says that, but I kind of feel like it's more. You're like, well, that's cool, but it still says this. And so for all the gray of life and for all the gray of like uh, justifying our way through this kind of dark alley, or maybe this is okay now, what do you think the interpretation of the scripture says? And we can kind of work that. Money is so black and white. And so what it allows is for uh, a teacher, in this case, Jesus, it allows for a teacher to make a really clear point about something that can't be argued with because the results are black and white and clear. I think that's uh, interesting for us. So it, it kind of takes us beyond our feelings. Your feelings are fine and valid, but it takes us beyond our feelings and, and centers on facts. Now, the facts of your bank statement or your investment statement may cause feelings, but that's not what this is about. Jesus knows your heart. He knows that you're good at wiggling out of certain things and black and white stuff tends to keep us where we need to be. So um, before we get into the scripture, I want to start with context. So we are going to be in Matthew 25. Matthew 23 is a lamentation, okay? Jesus is going through all the woes. You have ever heard of the woes? Woe to them and woe to them and woe to them. He's saying for all those people who are going to choose not to believe, man, this is not going to go well. So he's grieving for them, he's grieving over them, and then he begins to grieve over what's about to happen in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about to be sacked. It's going to be just conquered and decimated. So there's this kind of like, oh man, this isn't going well pretty soon in the future, and some people are really on a bad trajectory. That's 23. Matthew 24, Jesus pivots and starts talking about the end times. Okay Destruction of the temple, the end of his life, the end of days, tribulation and prophecies being fulfilled, and he 's anticipating our curiosity, and so that 's where in in matthew twenty four he says, no one knows the day or the hour of the coming and the, that last moment okay so so he 's like going from it 's going to be bad, the end is near in chapter twenty five then he tells the story of ten virgins it 's a parable of ten virgins, they have these candles it 's a whole thing. you can look it up, and what he 's talking about there is um be ready for the end. So again, more talk about the end. Really interesting. All of this is end language. It's all finality language. He finishes chapter 25 with a story about sheep and goats. What did you do while you were alive, essentially? Did did you do well for the least of these? Did you not? And that's a story about judgment. And then Matthew 26 drops us directly into the passion story, and Jesus is going to be crucified. And so there's this really interesting context. I wanted to give you that whole picture so you can see when we drop this parable in, you don't just think it's some story in the middle of nowhere. It's a story in the middle of Jesus telling his followers that anyone who will listen, the time is short, that the end is near, and we got to get our lives together, okay? Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. We'll put it on the screen. You can read it with us. Jesus says this, for it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents, and here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, he who also had uh, the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered me two talents, and here I've made two talents more. But his master answered him, "'You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that i reap what I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the banker, so at least at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given, will more be given, and he will have an abundance.'" but from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth welcome to church <laughs> everybody loves the story when it ends with weeping and gnashing of teeth that's what, okay so so let's do a little a little bit more background you've probably heard this, a talent is worth a lot of money. 15 to 20 years labor is kind of, you know, there's different estimates out there, but that's kind of a, well, let's average them all out. 15 to 20 years labor is what a talent is worth. So what we're looking at here is essentially one servant was given a hundred years salary. You can do the math. One was given 40 years salary. One was given 20 years salary. And that's what they've been given. The master leaves assets um, with these servants, and we, servants is a weird word for us. We're like, oh, what is this really? He's leaving them with a fiduciary, if you've ever heard that term. It, you have to rethink the idea of a servant. You have to think this is something different. It's not a slave or a contractor in this story and in this sense. This is someone who's been given control over assets, entrusted to grow them. And it requires that the fiduciary manages the assets for the owner's benefit. This is kind of the contract between an owner of an asset and a fiduciary. They have to manage the asset to the owner's benefit, not to the fiduciary's benefit. This is if you like sports, like the general manager of a team, sometimes they make a trade to save their job, and you're like, that's not good for the team, that's him trying to save his job. And this is the difference between somebody who's an owner or acting in the benefit of the owner versus someone who's caring about their own agenda. Okay. The thing you need to see is the the master is left vulnerable in this relationship. There's a high level of trust. He's given somebody a hundred years' wages and said, This is up to you. I'll be back. Do something good with it. That's a high level of trust, but a high level of vulnerability, too. Two level trust, actually. He has to trust them, but then, as you're going to see, they have to trust him in return. So, so as we look at it, the, the master hands all this money to these trusted servants and says, I trust you with it. I'm leaving the country. I'll be back. Do something good. So if we start there and begin to do a little pre-application here, is there an area of your life, can you identify an area of your life where God has entrusted you with something? Is there an area of your life where God has entrusted you with something? Maybe you got a million-dollar inheritance. I don't know. But maybe it's a skill or a relationship or it's a community or it's access. It's an asset. It's a talent. Maybe you have musical ability. So we take for granted, I do, that we show up here on Sunday morning and there's like hyper-talented people that have given hours upon hours of their week to get on the same page musically and lead us to the Father through worship. Well, it's a talent and a skill, and they've leveraged it for our greater good. And like, that's a beautiful use. of God has entrusted the people on this stage that lead us in worship, so God has entrusted them with something profound. But they're using it. They're returning on the investment God has put in them. Maybe you have business acumen. We have a finance committee. So we have people who give hours of their month, they come here and they pour over our checking account statement. Nobody pours over anyone's checking account statement. And people love the church enough and they use their business minds to come and say, what if we put this money over here? And what if we did this over there? And how did we spend so much in this area? How, what if we switch that? And they use significant time and effort to make sure that we best steward God's resources. Like, that's a big deal. You're entrusted with a gift and a skill and a talent, and, and it's being returned. The person I think of first when I think of somebody who's been entrusted with skills and talents and who kind of most profoundly has a return on them, and it impacts my life, which is why I think of this person. I think of Sophia Giro. Um, There she is. Sophia, um, is she here? Sophia? Oh, oh, boy, sorry. Okay. Oh, boy. Next to her husband, Michael, and her boys, my wife and I are like vice presidents of the Sophia fan club. (laughs) She uh, founded, owns Black Swamp Fine Arts School, which is this kind of radical ministry of beauty that is making generational differences in young people in our city. Whether they're taking violin lessons or they're putting on the Nutcracker for a thousand people in a theater in Findlay, like they are doing incredible things, but they're doing it with a gospel-centered lens. It's such that the reason I chose this picture, like not one of Sophia with her family, is I wanted you to see somebody who is um, radically about a gospel-centered business and using her talents to make much of the kingdom has to be pretty incredible if a public university is going to invite her to the College of Business for a lunch and learn where she can give some of her business tips to their students. Like, that's what it looks like to have a skill. Sophie has musical ability, she has artistic ability, she's been entrusted with gifts, and she also has an entrepreneurial business skill, she's been entrusted with these gifts, and she's turning them and leveraging them and investing them into a community, and the return on that is not only in the lives of children that they're touching, but then she's given a place and a podium and a, a, a pulpit from which to espouse what she believes. And it's this sort of beautiful thing that happens, which is why we're so big on her fan club. How, how big an impact do you have to have for, for the public university to say, yeah, get that, get that young woman running the Christian business back here so she can give some insight to our students. So she's a strong Christian woman, and she's a leader, an entrepreneur, she's a wife and a mother, she's a mentor, she's on our worship team, she serves at the pregnancy center, and this is not Sophia worship day, she's probably getting lower in her seat as we speak. This is an example of what, when I look at our community and I look at the people we know and I say, who is doing it in a way that when I read the parable of the talents, I go, this is a well-done, good and faithful servant in action. This is somebody who's leveraging their life so that the skills and talents and resources they've been given might make radical kingdom impacts. Someone came up to me uh, pretty recently, on this same idea. Said, "Hey, I I like to cook. Check, and I like to bless others with what I cook. Check. Why don't we have a meal ministry?" And I go into my spiel. We used to, but then the church grew, and it got weird to send eight meal trains a week. It's a whole thing. They <laughs> said, "Yeah, yeah, but I want to use my gift to bless others. I, this is how I want to serve." Like, isn't there a way to have just a list of us who love to give this way? And that list of us, you could just, when there's a meal train, you hear about it. I don't hear about it. You hear about it. And I go, well, that's true. I do hear about it. Can you just send it to us and then leave it to us? We can lean in. We can go check in. We can make all the great stuff. And then we can do our thing because I may not be a great singer. I may not want to do X, Y, and Z, but I can cook and I can deliver a meal. And so multiple people had asked me this. And they were essentially saying, can we have a meal ministry? Can I use my gift to bless other people? And in light of the parable of talents, who am I to say no? Our process runs through community groups, but some people aren't in a community group. Or sometimes community groups get busy and we drop the ball and someone falls through the cracks. So wait a minute. Can we create a place where a volunteer would be alerted when the church, someone in the church needs a meal? Can we create a process for that? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm officially unveiling our new meal ministry. Congratulations. You asked for it, you got it. There's a, I'm not joking, there's a sign-up sheet on the info center. So if you're one of those people that goes, look, I don't have the time to do this, or I can't actually volunteer for that, or I couldn't, that tambourine looks like a really complicated instrument, I can't do that. If that's you, and you're like, but I love to cook and I'd love to deliver a meal and bless people in a time of need, we're gonna have that for you. And we'll figure out the process on the back end so it's all smooth and easy, but that's because what I want more than anything is for you to be activated in the, in the gifts God has entrusted in you. God has given you these talents, these gifts, these resources, and he goes, I just want to see you use them in the kingdom. So we're going to have a way for you to do that. It could also be who you've been entrusted with. So if you think about the talents, and we usually, because our word talent and that word talent, which was money, we usually think resources or like skills and gifts. So I'm naming a meal ministry. But what if it's who? What if the, the, the thing you've been entrusted with is, is People? We'll talk about tribes later in the series, because I think you have unique access to people that I don't have access to. God has entrusted you with a community or with a a group, a subgroup, a sub-demographic of a sub-demographic that you and you alone have access to. God entrusted me with a wife. And I will put a photo on the screen in just a moment that will show you how profoundly I did not deserve my wife. All right, go ahead and put it up. All right, that's me. I don't I'm going to take a sip while you, while you soak that in. i have been my eighth year as a pastor here. It's been a joy to serve you. Um, So, I was living in, in South Africa, and that was taken. I, I was leading. I met a team that came to Kenya for a mission trip in the early 2000s, and you know, went in Rome. Um, so, my wife, not exactly this version, but essentially this version, meets this version of me. And this is why I say I did not earn uh, the blessings God has given me. He delivered someone far beyond what I deserved, and, and when The time came for kids, Um, I actually demanded that we have girls, and she was like, I don't think you know how it works. (laughs) And, you know, we went through a couple, I said, listen, it's going to be girls though, right? And she's like, I can't, it's not up to me. And I was like, but it sort of is, so, you know, (laughs) girls, I wanted girls. So I'm entrusted with a wife, I ask for girls, God says, here you go. God gives us two beautiful girls, and the question then for me, if I'm reading the parable of the talents, and I go, okay, you've been entrusted with these three women in your life. What will I do with the humans that God has tied to my existence, right? This is what's been entrusted to me. This is what the master has left for me. He said, this is an incredible gift of resources. What are you going to do? So my role, just to be clear, is to lead my wife towards holiness, to wash her in the water of the word, to love her like Jesus loves us, serve her, give my life for her. That's my job. My role in her life is to give my life for her flourishing. For my girls, this gift of unspeakable joy, thanks to my wife for giving me girls, how sweet of her. My job is to raise my girls up in truth, to show them what a husband looks like, to be some representative reflection of the love of the Father. And, and I would confess and admit that I sometimes spoil, spoil the women of my home. I don't mean to spoil them. What I'm trying to do is ruin them. I'm trying to ruin them. And I openly tell anybody this. I'm trying to ruin them to the world, that they look at what the world has to offer and go, that's not that great. I want to ruin them to consumption and be like, that's not that great. I want to wreck their expectation of what love looks like. I want for my, all three women in my, in my home, I want them to look around and see that nothing less than God's best is acceptable in their world. Because what I want for them is to settle for nothing less than God's best. And ultimately that means nothing less than God. So I want to ruin them. I want to ruin them for anything less. Because I've been entrusted with this family It's on me, having been given that investment to show a return on it, which is about trust. Because God has entrusted them to me. He trusts me with them. And in turn, I have to do my work and then re-entrust him with them. But look back at the text. Where does this go wrong? I'll put the message version up in this spot. So ignore the amount, because I wanted you to see the different language from the version we read earlier. This is the This is the middle servant. The servant with the 2,000 showed how he had also doubled his master's investment, and his master commended him, good work, you did well. And then it goes on in verse, the next verse, the servant who had given 1,000, so beyond this, this is another good work, be my partner, good work, be my partner, and then we go to the next one. And he says, master, I know you've had high standards. I I know that you hate careless ways that you demand the best and make no allowances for error. This is the one who buried his talents. He says, I was afraid I might disappoint you, so I found a good hiding place and I secured your money, and here it is, safe and sound, down to the last cent. The picture I wanted you to see is that that, that, the servant who buried the talent, I used to read that as someone who was just a conservative investor, right? Just want to keep it safe. I'd put my cash, you know, my great-grandmother had all her cash stuffed in the mattress. It was frozen in the deep freeze. I mean, we were pulling out turkeys and then like just blocks of cash. You're like, what is happening? Because the depression was real and there was a run on the bank. So what did you do in that generation? You deep freeze your money. That's conservative investment strategy, just in case you're wondering. This, what we're seeing here, is not a conservative investment strategy. This is someone who doesn't trust the master. The, the, the third servant buries his talent because he doesn't trust the master. He said, I was afraid I might disappoint you. I might disappoint you. He says, it, it, the way he talks about it, it, it's almost as if he doesn't know the heart of the master in general. He, he certainly doesn't know his intentions. Because remember, what was the intention? The intention is that he might go away and come back to a return on his investment. And so what we see in the third servant is he's more concerned with his needs, fear of failure, than with the master's priority, return on investment. More concerned with his needs than the master's priority, therefore he buries the talent. This is fear-based living. So so like, I hope I'm a blessing to my family. We'll come back to that. I, I didn't tell you when I met my wife, I was very honest with her. I said, I have no intention to get married there's a backstory there, but I was growing as a Christian really for the first time in my life. I'd spent a year in Africa. I'd kind of had this awakening and I, I loved Jesus and I was on the right track. All my relationships before my wife were dysfunctional and really devastating for people. I was a problem. And so somewhere in me, I didn't know if God's love for me would hold up as I stumbled through marriage because I knew I wouldn't be perfect. I didn't know if I could be faithful I didn't know that if in my future failings, which we all have future failings, I didn't know that, that I could still fail and hold on to Jesus. And so my thought was, if I can't trust that God's still going to be there as I fail through that, I'm just not going to do that. What I was telling my future wife was I'm not getting married. I'm going to bury that in the ground. This is a gift. God is trying to give me the gift of a wife. And I'm taking that gift and I'm going, nah, I don't think so. And we misread that as, I didn't trust myself. Well, he didn't have confidence in his ability. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. That would be a generous reading. What we need to read is, I didn't trust God. And it comes out and presents as he didn't trust himself, but he actually doesn't trust on the grace and the mercy and the love of God. He doesn't trust on the provision of God, on God's ability to grow him, on God's ability to see him through difficult times. I didn't trust God, so I said, I'm not getting married. I can't risk it. I'm going to bury that talent. That's about me. And so, most of us, we bury our talents, we waste our lives when we are in that season where we go, What am I actually doing with my life? It isn't because we don't trust ourselves. And yet, that's what we would tell people, or that's what culture would tell you. You just got to do some self work, man. Treat yourself, work on yourself, spend some time with yourself. And I would say, I think you've done enough with yourself. I think you actually need to go spend some time with God. (laughs) You got into this mess because of self, it's God who gets you out. It isn't because of your low self esteem or your insecurity, it's because of your low self-esteem and insecurity. I'll say it this way. We, we associate those words with one thing, and I, I think we, we wrongly associate them because our modern culture would say that's a self-issue, and I would say that's a God issue. We have insecurity because we're trying to find security in something less than God. So yeah, it's because of your insecurity, but that's not on you. That's because you're not relating to the Father. You're not trusting the master. You don't know the heart of the master. You're not reaching out to the master going, what do you want me to do with the gifts you've given me? It's rooted in wrong belief in who we are and in who God is. So we waste our lives because we don't trust God. We bury our talents because we don't trust God. We have a fear of failure in the kingdom because we don't trust his kindness. We don't trust that if we mess it up, he thought of that like he was ready. When I give a C-minus sermon, God's like, yeah, I knew you were going to do that. It doesn't shake the kingdom. When we bury our talents, though, that's a relational violation. That's us saying, I don't trust you, that if I fail, you're still going to love me. So we begin living out of a false identity. That's why instead of living as sons and daughters, we begin to put our security in something else, something that maybe can't love us or unlove us. Build our lives on careers and bank accounts and sports affiliations and academic success. We build our lives on on something other than God because it feels like it's at least something we can control. So are we insecure? Actually, yes. But it's a function of not knowing where our security comes from. When we bury our talents and refuse to activate in the kingdom, we hold off from using the gifts God has entrusted to us. And that is rooted in our insecurity. We become self-focused and we forget that in Jesus, we have perfect security. Listen to what the psalmist says about what's true of us. Psalm 91, those who live in the shelter of the most high will find rest in the shadow of the almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust him, for he will rescue you from every trap, protect you from every deadly disease. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Do not be afraid of the terrors of night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Do not dread the disease that stalks in darkness, nor the disaster that strikes at midday. And the Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. And when they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation. Friends, insecurity can't stand in the presence of that truth. That those who put their trust in the heavenly father, they have perfect security. And we only start to wobble when we start to turn inward again. Some of you aren't convinced. You're like, look, look, I'm not, I don't know if that's true. I'm not sure I can be convinced of that. Because there's all sorts of schemes out there. There's all sorts of stuff out there. Maybe the psalmist was living a simpler life than the rest of us. Forward in the New Testament, what about all that comes against us? Romans 8, the writer says, "'For I am convinced.'" You're unconvinced? He's convinced. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor present, nor future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What comes against you that can separate you from the love of God? You are hidden in Christ. You are secure and inseparable because God so loved the world that his love beyond comprehension and understanding, his love beyond our daily experience, his love beyond our different attractions and distractions, his love through and beyond our failings and our worst days, his love that took the cross and defeated the grave, his love entrusts you with gifts so that you might participate in his love. His love entrusts you with gifts so you might participate in his love, in his redemption, that you might get to see others experience it as well. The question we're we're really asking today is, what would you do with the gifts of God if you knew you couldn't fail? If I gave you a million dollars today, you could answer that question. If, you, if I knew I couldn't fail with a million dollars, how, how would I use it? What would I invest in it? What would I do with it? And the reality is God has given you something far greater. God has given you talents in the form of time and talent and treasure and skills and tribes. God has given you a life What if the only failure in life was refusing to risk the life he'd given you in that sense? So how is God inviting you in the season to, to lean in, to activate? How might God want to use you in the life of the people around you? What about the life of the church he's called you into? We have a meal ministry because someone said, can we have a meal ministry? I like to cook and I want to bless people. I said, yep, it's done. What is God inviting you? What has He put on your heart to do? What has He uniquely created you for? Not that you might serve the church. I'm not worried about that. So that you might participate in relationship with the Father who's entrusted this beautiful thing to you. What would it look like for you to use your gifts and your talents and your resources in the community to lean in on the tribe He's put around you, to begin to influence them towards kingdom things? What would you do if the only failure in life was refusing to risk the talents he'd given you? Read verse 28 and 30. This is for the final servant who did a bad job is the final words of the master. Take the thousand, the one talent, give it to the one who risked the most and get rid of this, play it safe, who won't go out on a limb. Throw them into utter darkness. The darkness feels pretty scary. I want to focus on the risk and the play it's safe. Take the talent, and give it to the one who actually risked the talent I gave him in the first place, and get rid of the play it safe who won't go out on a limb. I wonder if the invitation of God for you today is what would it mean for you to go out on the limb? We're afraid of going out on the limb because limbs creak and they snap, and we fear what happens next. If you knew for a fact that God's got you, maybe going further out on that limb isn't so scary. Because He's made you for this, He's purposed you for this, and He's gifted you for the season to come. So, what would you do if you couldn't fail? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, stories that, that illustrate not only life around us, but that kind of pierce through into our hearts. Father, thank you that in, uh, in your word, we have a mirror. We can see into our own uh, insecurity. We can see into our, our own hesitation. Lord, my prayer for our community is one of not only conviction, but boldness. As we look at this story for the weeks to come, God, I pray that you would wake us up from where we're sleeping, that you would give us the the heart to risk on your behalf. Lord, that you would see us leveraging our lives to make you known. So Father, thank you that you would give us such beautiful truth. Thank you for your son who secures us and means that risk is no longer a risk to us. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.